You're listening to TIP. On today's show, I sit down with Jeremy Schneider to get his insights on personal finance and his useful strategies for building wealth for the millennial generation. Jeremy is a successful entrepreneur and software developer and the founder of Personal Finance Club, a resource that aims to aid investors in the most effective path to building wealth. Personal finance is always an interesting topic because managing your money effectively means you open up opportunities for investing. Jeremy has built a great community over at Personal Finance Club. He brings so much knowledge to the topic, sharing several tried and tested methods to get you on the right path to wealth. If you're just starting out in the world of investing, I hope this episode makes an impact and helps you see that it's possible to start when you're armed with the right knowledge. And I personally really enjoy my conversations with Jeremy. He's a very down-to-earth guy. He doesn't pitch any get-rich-quick schemes, and he just talks about proven strategies that work as long as you put in the work and put in the time and effort that it takes. Jeremy is very active on social media, specifically on Instagram at Personal Finance Club. And as always, you can follow me at the Robert Leonard. I am always referring to Jeremy's posts and learning from them myself. Both Jeremy and I post new free content every day in an attempt to make social media an educational resource rather than something that just wastes your time. I also enjoy the conversations I have with you all in the comments and my DMs. Now, without further delay, let's get into today's episode with Jeremy Schneider. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Hey, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of the Millennial Investing Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Robert Leonard. And with me today, I have Jeremy Schneider. Welcome to the show, Jeremy. Hey, thanks for having me, Robert. Let's start by talking about your background a little bit. Tell us a bit about how you got to where you are today and what made you so passionate about personal finance. So yeah, a little bit about me. I kind of technically retired at the age of 36. I'm 39 now. I started an internet company when I was graduating college. I grew it for 10 or 12 years. I sold it when I was 34. I worked there for two more years. And then at 36, I quit my full-time job and haven't um, had a job ever since. I sold my company for about 5 million bucks. About 2 million came to me after other people got their share in taxes. And so then I kind of had this windfall of this money and I wanted to be a good steward of that money and not basically blow it. And so I I read every book I could get my hands on on personal finance and started listening to podcasts and YouTube and learning everything I could. And I kind of realized that every classic book on investing said the exact same thing. And it's a message that isn't really getting to a lot of young people. You know, We don't teach it in schools. Money is kind of a taboo topic. We don't talk about it a lot. And it's something that I wake up every single day and I'm passionate about, even though I don't have a full-time job. It's what I still get pumped about. So basically, I started something called Personal Finance Club, which is a goal of basically helping young people learn about personal finance and investing. Most of the magic happens on Instagram. I kind of just make little bite-sized infographics that help people learn about the stuff that we otherwise really aren't teaching in schools. And the mission of Personal Finance Club aligns exactly with what we're trying to do here. We're trying to help people in that 22 to 40-ish range for ages to do exactly what you just said, is be better with their money. What was the type of company that you started? 
It was called Rentlinks. It still exists. It's still being run successfully by the company that bought it. And it was basically online rental housing advertising. So if you want to look for an apartment, you can go to Zillow or Craigslist or apartments.com or rentals.com or apartment guide. And there's like 50 of these sites that are constantly changing and going in and out of business and becoming more and less popular. And so as a renter, you can go to any of those sites and search. But as a property manager, you have a challenge of how do I find an apartment or how do I post an apartment to all those different sites and consistently advertise it, keep my rents accurate, stuff like that. And so I made a site where you could post once to rent links and automatically advertise on 50 different apartment search sites and add a photo, description, rent, all that stuff, and it's automatically updated. Very cool. Very cool. Why did you want to focus on your finances when you got that windfall of money? A lot of people listening to the show don't necessarily have that windfall of money, of course, but they have their own money that they want to make sure that they're good stewards with. And how did you, what made you think of like, I need to be smart with this before I make a lot of mistakes? Because we've had guests on the show. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him, but his name is James Altucher. And he sold his internet company not too long ago. I think he made about 10 million bucks and he blew it all because. He didn't go about it the way you did. He didn't say, Hey, I need to learn this stuff and not mess it up. And so he blew it. So what made you be like, Hey, I don't want to do that and you know, really learn this? That's a great question. And I, and I guess, first of all, didn't want to blow up my money. And I think a lot of it started with how I had been living my life up until that point. And so I think one of the big myths of wealth is that wealth looks like rappers and football players and people who are going to clubs and making it rain. And and my wealth happened to come in kind of a similar way where I actually did have a windfall all at once, but that's really not typical. And as an example, I was living that way before I made the big windfall too, which is when I was running my company, I never paid myself more than $36,000 a year. That was my max take-home salary ever. I was the lowest paid employee at my company because I wanted to reinvest that money into the company. And still, I was on pace to be a millionaire ignoring the value of the company just from my $36,000 take-home salary. And so the way I did that was by living below my means. I spent less than $36,000 a year. You know, some people live on $30,000 a year. Some people live on $25,000 a year. So I basically decided to live on $31,000 a year, more or less, and then contribute $5,000 or so a year to a Roth IRA. So then at the age of 33, basically living just above the poverty line in Southern California, I live in San Diego, my net worth was about $150,000. And so I was already kind of living by the same you know, strategies and plan that I currently live by, which is to live, spend less than I make and invest the difference. And so when I had my windfall, I just that was just kind of like now on steroids, which was I had this big amount of money. And as someone who was disciplined and careful with my money before, I wanted to make sure that I didn't go crazy or something and blow it all because I, I've lost sense of value of the dollar or whatever. So I guess I want to make sure that people, when they hear that I just like had this windfall, it took a lot of hard work. It took over 10 years. And even during that time, I was still living by these exact same rules to build wealth. What I think is great about that is, like you said, you were only paying yourself $36,000. And that, the windfall aside, that relates to a lot of people that are listening to the show. A lot of people make between thirty-six dollars and $50,000 a year. I mean, you live in Southern California where it's very expensive. I travel to, to San Diego frequently and I know how expensive it is out there. So, I mean, if you can do it, then it, you know, that just shows people that it, it can be done regardless of, of kind of where you live and how much you make. I think a lot of people, they are kind of incredulous when they hear that. And the thing is, like, it's just a simple, like, a simple set of decisions, right? So, when I sold my company, I was driving a 99 Ford Explorer. I had bought it five years earlier for $3,000 in cash. I actually kind of did the math on this recently. Just for those five years, I drove this 99 Ford Explorer 
My car payment was zero because I bought in cash. My maintenance cost was about 50 bucks a month or so every year. Something worth 500 bucks would go wrong and have to get fixed. It wasn't that big of a deal. But over the course of those, so my total, and then I sold the car for 1500 bucks. So over the course of those five years, I actually owned it for six years because I owned it for another year after I was a millionaire because they were still fine. My total monthly car cost was like 60 bucks a month or something like that. When you count how much I paid for it, how much I sold it for, and then the, the maintenance cost is like 60 bucks a month. The average car payment in the US is over 500 bucks. And so, and people who make $36,000 a year very often have $500 a month car payments. And so, when you just take that 440 bucks a month I wasn't spending on a brand new car and look at what it did in the market during those six years, it made $90,000. So, in those six years from like whatever it was, like 26 to 32 or whatever it was, I made $90,000 from one decision of just deciding to drive a perfectly fine used car, right? And so when people are like, oh, uh, I have kids or I, you know, I, I don't want to break down the freeway, you know, they, they make all these excuses, they, they're dating or whatever it is, they make all these excuses. But the thing is like, the car is fine. Once a year, I took it to the shop and he fixed something. And that one little decision, maybe $90,000 for those five years, if you, if you extrapolate that to every car you drive over the course of a career, it's over a million dollars. If you extrapolate that to whether you decide to rent a fancy place or a little bit less fancy place, or you decide to go on a fancy vacation or get an Airbnb or you know, all these little decisions add up. And the net result is being a millionaire when you retire or being broke when you retire. Yeah. And towards the end of the show, we're going to dive into this whole car and house conversation a little bit more. But it's really fascinating. When I hear your story, I can't help but think about you being the perfect example of The Millionaire Next Door, that book by uh, Thomas Stanley. It's, it's literally exactly everything they talk about in that book. And if people haven't read that, I highly recommend you go and read that because I read that very early on for myself and, and I really like that book. So definitely would highly recommend it. And so in the Personal Finance Club, you talk about how there are three lifelong habits that are the bedrock on which you can build wealth and stay wealthy. What are those three lifelong habits and why are they so important? Thanks, first of all, for saying I'm like the millionaire next door. It's very flattering. And I think it also it's a great book because I think it just kind of does bust those myths that it's all rappers and football players because that's not what normal wealth looks like. And often those football players go broke because they don't have high net worth. They have high spending. And high spending doesn't mean wealth. High spending just means burning your money, right? Um, yeah, the three habits. The first one is know the why. And when I say know the why, W-H-Y, it's like, why do you care about money? Why are you doing this? And in my opinion, the, the why is you want to be as happy as possible throughout the course of your life and be able to help as much as possible. I think that's kind of like why we're here. And, and I think some people fall out of balance in one way or the other. One, they can spend too much when they're young. They're the YOLOers. They're like, oh, I don't care when I'm old, I'm going to spend all now. But the problem is they're actually less happy when they're young because they're constantly... If you're broke every day or young, you're stressed out about money, you're stressed about being broke, you're stressed out about what you're going to do in the future about money. And so you're not happier. But then the people can fall out of balance the other way, which is they lose all sight of living in the moment and living and having happiness and want to die with the most zeros in their bank account. And that doesn't bring happiness either. And so it is kind of this balance, which is you want to have your money, control over your money so you can live a happy life. You can be happy now because you have a plan. You can be happy later because your plan executed well and you're wealthy and you're older. So, so yeah, number one is know the why. Why are you doing this? To be happy now and later. Number two is live below your means. We kind of already talked about that, which is just spend less than you make. You know, if you don't do that, you'll always be broke. One minus one equals zero every single time. 
And number three is earn more money. So when you live below your means, you can kind of increase that delta between how much you spend and how much you make two ways. You can spend less, or you can make more. And that delta, that difference, which you can then invest is basically how you build wealth. And those, those are the two ways to do it. You can spend less, or you can make more. And the combination of those two, increasing that amount you can invest. You touched on a point there that I want to dive into a little bit deeper because I actually get questioned this exact question from people in the audience quite a bit. Given that they're a younger demographic, like I said, we're about 20 to 35 probably on average. I get asked a lot, how do I balance enjoying life versus investing for the future? How do I decide, do I forego X so that I can save for the future or do I just enjoy life a little bit now? And, and you touched on it there, but dive into that a little bit more for us. How can someone who's a little bit younger has, I don't know, 30, 40 years to retirement, how can they think about this dynamic? I think a lot of the uncertainty comes from the future kind of being this black hole, which is, I don't know what's going to happen in the future. I don't know what my money is going to be doing in the future. And I think a great way to combat that is kind of two things. Know where you are right now. It's kind of like knowing the score. And when I say know where you are, the first tip I always give people is to know your net worth. Know how much money you actually are worth right now. And your net worth, if you don't know, is how much you own all of your assets, your bank accounts, your retirement accounts, your car, your house, minus everything you owe, your debts, your mortgage, your student loans, your credit card debt, your auto loan. And the the difference, what you have minus what you owe is your net worth. And so a lot of young people, especially if they're buried in student loans, might have a negative net worth. And if you don't know where you are, it's impossible to even begin to understand where you need to be and what direction you need to go to get there. And so yeah, the first step is to know where you are. And then the second step is to basically do some projections and say, okay, I talk about this later. It's like in, in my plan is to have a plan and say, okay, if I if I put away five bucks a month for the next 40 years and I get a 7% return on that money and my net worth is currently negative $50,000, where will I be in 40 years? And spoiler alert, that's not enough. You know, you're, you're still going to be broke in 40 years. But I think a lot of young people don't even do those two things. They don't even know their net worth, and they don't even look at what a plan would look like if they're just investing regularly. And then when you don't have those things and you're trying to balance, what are you trying to balance if you don't even know, right? You don't even know where you are. You don't even know where you're going. That sounds a really hard thing. But I think if you then if you do those two things, you say, okay, if I put 400 bucks a month away, and I pay off my, you know, if I pay off my dad in three years, I put 400 bucks a month away. At the age of 60, my net worth is going to be $2 million adjusted for inflation. That's pretty good. And then you can start to say, okay, what do I want more? Do I want to go on a trip more now and push that retirement date till 61? Or would I rather buckle down hard for four years and retire at 55 and get five years of my life back? I know like those ages sound like perfectly old and you're 25 or whatever, but five years is a long time. If you can have five years of like additional not having to work. That's a pretty good thing to shoot for. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. That's Airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. 
For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found on the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet. But I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. And when you're talking about calculating your net worth, I've heard a lot of people kind of get fancy with it. You include this, you don't include that, you do include this. Do you just kind of keep it simple? Everything you own asset-wise minus everything you owe, and then just use that as your, your net worth and not really make any adjustments for... you know. Some people take out home equity in your primary residence and don't count that. Some people do. How do you think about that? I'm a simple guy. I think that I think the reason that people are broke isn't because they like missed some nuance in the net worth calculation or because they didn't quite like fully get the difference between a traditional and a Roth IRA. You know, the reason people are broke is because they're just spending more money than they make and they're, you know, they're not investing. And so for now, we're gonna keep it super simple. And I actually don't even recommend using an app or downloading a thing. I think you should just open up a good old fashioned spreadsheet if you want to get fancy. I mean, you can do it on paper. I actually met with somebody who just wrote it on paper. I was like, that's awesome. But I, I use Google Sheets just so I can like you know save it and look at it later, and then just make a list. Everything to your name, and I think just putting it all on paper is like this mind clearing activity where you're like, wow, I, there's all then all these things floating around. I don't really know what's out there. I, I know I have an old bank account somewhere. I have a 401k to my company or student loans or you know all that stuff. If you just put it on there, then you like kind of it's out of your head on paper, and then you can relax and see where you're at. So yeah, I keep it super simple. And then yeah, I think choosing to include your home equity or not. Is I just put it in there because I want to know what I'm really worth. And if I liquefy everything or liquidate everything and sell my home and move into a tent with a big duffel bag full of cash, like how much is going to be in that? How much is going to be in there? I think that's kind of the best way to know like where exactly you're at. Yeah, I think about it the same way. I include everything you own minus everything you owe, and that's your net worth. I mean, I understand some of the arguments against it, but it's it's like you said, it's it's real and it's simple. And I think keeping simple is so important. And I think going back to that dynamic of of living for now versus continuing on with saving i think there's a component of it of education that i think helps you make that decision i feel like the more educated you become the easier that decision makes not because you're always going to choose savings i would consider myself pretty well educated on personal finance but i don't always necessarily choose savings over living now but at least i know i say hey i understand how this is going to impact my future 
I can at least make an educated decision. Whereas if you don't understand what's going on, you maybe feel stressed or uneasy and, and then you just don't really know. And then you're just not happy either way, no matter what you choose. Totally. And I think basically every time I'm talking to someone who's scared about money, it's just because it's, it's simple once you get to its core, but it's just a very complicated landscape. And there's like Bitcoin and there's multi-level marketing schemes and there's day trading and there's stock tip websites and there's and someone's like, I should be investing. And they just, this like cloud of stuff they've never understood just like enters their mind and it sounds terrifying. But once you like, you know, like I said, that kind of the sky opened for me when I like read all these books on investing. I was like, wait a minute, this is pretty simple. It's just like spend less than you make, take the difference, invest every month. And, you know, it doesn't have to be perfect investing. And, you know, I, you know I, we can talk later about like the kind of investing that I like, which is very simple and tried and true and everything. Takes just a few minutes, but even if you don't have the simple, simple investing, or you're more into real estate, or you're more into buying individual stocks, or whatever, you're never going to meet someone who's like, "I've been buying and holding individual stocks for 40 years, and I put more money in every month, and I'm broke." Like, you know, that doesn't happen. Like, they pick some winners, they pick some losers, and they're super wealthy, right? And so, you know, I guess don't let perfect be the enemy of good. Some people are so afraid of not knowing every single little thing about the world of investing that they don't even start. That's bad, right? Just start with something that you do understand. Start with something simple and keep going consistently and learn more as time goes on. And that's going to be a good lifelong strategy. Yeah, I have to admit that I am one of those people that sometimes perfect gets in the way of good for me. Not that I don't contribute or invest. I do. I thankfully I I don't stop that because of that dynamic. But I do often, you know, almost add unnecessary stress to my life or just kind of overcomplicate things just because I want to be you know, quote unquote, perfect when in reality, like you said, good enough is probably going to do well over 35, 40 years. And I want to talk about that complexity piece. I know you have six steps that really lay out a simple plan, how people can become a millionaire. And I think it's interesting to talk about that because if you listen to the news, read social media other than your account and mine, presumably, and even read some books, sometimes personal finance is made to seem super complex and difficult. But like I said, you have that simple plan. So I want to walk through that Explain how following these six steps can help someone become wealthy. I think that same thing. People just have this like very confusing set of stuff floating around their mind and they're trying to do everything all at once. And because of that, they're trying to juggle 16 balls and then they all get dropped instead of just getting one. So it's basically about focus and going systematically through the plan. So the, the first step is just saving a month's worth of expenses. And so when you look at the studies in the US, it's like they, they ask, People, if a unexpected expense of five hundred dollars came up, could you come up with that cash within a week without borrowing money or, or selling something? And like sixty percent of Americans say no. It's like some horrific, crippling statistic that like most Americans are just straight up broke. And for sure, there's like socioeconomic issues and like bigger political things. But a big part of it is just knowledge and personal behavior, which is people are used to like money comes in, money goes out. They see money in their account, they got to spend it. And so that first step is just save a month's worth of expenses, like get out of the washing machine of you know monthly living paycheck to paycheck. Take that, you know whatever, whatever it is, if you're living on 3000 or 4000 bucks a month, take it, put it in a savings account, forget about it, leave it there. So that's step one. Step two, if you have a 401k that offers a match, you contribute it up to your match. And so, and these things are to be done in order and not to skip ahead. So what's that? What that? So if you're listening right now, you say, should I be saving money before a 401k match? I say, if you don't have a month's worth of expenses, then yes, because you're broke and your 401k match is great, but it's not as good as 
payday loans and credit card interest and overdraft fees are bad, right? Being broke is a very expensive state to be in. And so before you even open up that 401k, get that month's worth of expenses. Then step two, you have a 401k that offers a match. That's where your company is giving you a dollar for every dollar you put in, for example. Then that's free money right there. So you want to take advantage of that. Step three is aggressively pay off all debt except the mortgage. And so this one is one where people often think is crazy. They have student loans or they have a car loan at 0% interest or they have credit card debt or whatever. And they want to do five things at once. They want to be buying a house and paying down your, you know, investing and saving for a trip and blah, blah, Just do nothing but pay off the debt. And, and when I suggest this to people and say, hey, how would it feel if in two years from now, you had no student loans, no credit card debt, no car loan, and all that income that was coming in is just being burned on those debts was yours to use how you feel, how you see fit. It usually is this like this weight lifted off their shoulders. And, and you only get there if you're purposeful about it. Right? You know, I know people in their 50s and 60s who still have massive debts. And they just every month, they're just stressed out by paying off the banks. And they've been doing it for decades. But if when they were 25, they spent two or three years on it. And at the age of 28, they had no student loans. And then for the rest of 28 to 60, they were using that money to build wealth, then they would be in this massively different situation. So and that's why focus is so important. Because if you do that, and you're doing six other things, none of them are going to get done. But if all you do on step three is pay off all the debt, then you can get rid of it. Step four, save an emergency fund, three to six months. So that, that uh, one month of cash you had, make it into at least three to six months. Again, because being broke is expensive and you want to get in a position where you're never, you know, if you lose your job or there's a coronavirus or whatever, you're not going to be burning through your one month and then four weeks later, you're in trouble. Three to six months, depend, and you, know, you can decide how big that is depending on if you have family and how, how uh, employable you are and how risky your job is and things like that. Step number five is invest in tax-advantaged accounts. That's your Roth IRA, your 401k, maybe an SAP IRA, maybe a 403b. I'm speaking largely to American audiences here because across, you know, these are all American tax laws where the US government has decided to give us a tax break if we invest for our own future so we're not broken or old and having to live on Social Security. And so basically figure out what those are to you. For most people, the first step is a Roth IRA. And then if your company has a 401k, the 401k. And then after you've exhausted all those tax-advantaged retirement accounts, step six is just to invest more, whether that's in a regular brokerage account, buying investment real estate, stuff like that. And so once you're on step seven, then you're just plowing money away. And now you're starting to look at, okay, how early can I retire? Maybe it doesn't have to be 65. Maybe it can be 55 or 50 or 45. You know, how many years of your life can you buy back? I love all of those steps, but I want to go back to the debt piece for a second because I've been recently reading a bit about Dave Ramsey and studying him a bit. And I don't necessarily see eye to eye with all of his strategies. And your debt strategy seems somewhat similar to him. So I want to talk to you about that a little bit. When you talk about paying off this debt quickly, what if someone has a loan, say an auto loan that's 1%, 1.5%, 2%, does it really make sense for them to pay off that debt rather than invest? In my opinion, yes. Because they don't have a math problem, they have a behavior problem, right? And, you know, not, not a problem. I mean, to like come down on someone who bought a car on a loan. Like, I bought a car on a loan once and I paid off and it was, you know, cost me a bunch of money, but I was fine. Here's the thing I, I've never met a rich person who's gone there by leveraging a depreciating asset. If you buy a car that's more money than you have and you borrow money to buy it and then the car plummets in value, that's not a recipe for getting rich. It's like a really good recipe for being broke, actually, because you're spending more money than you have, you're paying for that benefit. The thing that you buy goes, down in value, you know, it's just this like this 
magnifying combinatorial effect on staying broke. And so, and when you don't pay off your car loan at zero, one, two percent, whatever, you're just living in this fiction where you have money when you don't have money. And it causes you to continue to make bad decisions like borrow money to buy cars, right? Whereas if you pay off that car loan and you have no debt, next time you buy a car and you're looking at a new $35,000 Jeep or a perfectly good three-year-old $16,000 Toyota, you're like, huh, I don't want to spend. And, and maybe you have $35,000 in the bank at that point and you decide to buy things in cash. You're like, maybe I want to spend every penny to my name on a car. And so you buy a car that costs half as much, which is still a perfectly fine car. An $18,000 car is like a gorgeous car. And you, I'm, looking, I'm looking out the window right now and I see 15 cars parked in my street. I don't know which ones are $18,000, which ones are $35,000. They all look fine. They all drive away every day. And, but when you get out of that mindset of living beyond your means and spending money you don't have, then you start to think about, okay, how am I going to build wealth? One of my big things is don't think about your monthly costs. Think about total costs. You know, I think broke people are saying, okay, what's my monthly? What's my monthly? Can I afford? Can I afford? Can I afford? Rich people are thinking about what's this $30,000 going to do for me if I put it into a car that plummets in value? Or what's it going to do to me, do for me if I put it into an index fund that's going to double in value? And when you start thinking about that total cost, think long-term down the road, you start to build more wealth. So yeah, I hate 0% car loans. I think 0% car loans are this, this big, like just marketing gimmick that's like torturing middle-class people into being more broke because there's no, it's not 0%. It's just you're buying something you don't need. Like I'll give you a 0% loan on some magic beans if you want that cost $50,000. You can, you can pay me back over 20 years. I don't care. You're just giving me money. You know, you're buying things that you don't need, right? And so on that same token, I don't like super some cars, just baked in the cost of the car anyway. They're obviously, they're still making their money. It's not some, you're not beating the car company. You need to figure out some trick to put the car company out of business. You're just buying something you didn't need instead of investing the money and building wealth for yourself. Yeah, I completely 110% agree with the, the 0% offers that you see. That They just add that back into whatever the price is on top of it. So 100% agree with that. For me personally, to be a little bit specific, I worked at a local credit union when I got the loan that I have for my car and rates were at like 1.24% at the time. And we already got half a percent off because we were employees. So I got 0.74% on a pretty cheap car. It was like $18,000 car. So it wasn't a ton of money, but I just I can't get myself to pay that off because it's so low. And I think there might be some people that are in the audience that are listening that are kind of in a similar position, maybe not as low of a rate, but maybe sub 2%. If they ask what your balance is on that car loan right now? 10,000, maybe? Let me ask you this. I'll ask you a question. What if I am a computer engineer? What if I hacked into your bank account right now and I paid off that loan for you? So I assume that it sounds from talking, you've got either stock or assets or whatever. So I paid it off for you. And so your assets went down by 10,000, your debt is 100% cleared. Would you go to the bank tomorrow and borrow $10,000 at 0.74 interest and go invest it in the stock market? Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> would you? Okay. You're, you're like grinning when you said it. Would because I would. I would. Personally, I know that's probably not so the Dave Ramsey if, answer, but I would. No, that's, I mean, and honestly, you know, I'm, not, I'm not Dave Ramsey. I actually think he's a little bit overboard, but I think he's doing it for a reason, which he's trying to make a point. But would you borrow $2 million at 0.74% interest and go put it in the market? Yes. Really? At that low of a rate, I would take as much money as I possibly could get my hands on and I would invest it. Because over the, over the long term, if I... I can invest that money and make more than 0.74%. But and what so, if the market drops by 20% and now your net worth is negative $200,000 because you're basically bankrupt at that point? 
It depends if there's margin calls. If there's margin calls, then I would be very different. But if it was just a straight loan and I had that money and I could just invest it, I would because I think the spread is there. And that's and that's kind of exactly the point that I have is is I think I can get probably maybe 10% on average in the market right over the next 40 years. So for me to pay off less than 1%, it just kind of mathematically doesn't make sense. I see the yeah. psychological point that you say, and I agree 100%. I never want a carload again. But for me, it's just that mathematical. I'm an analytical guy, a numbers guy. So yeah. when I see that spread, it's, it's hard for me. I mean, you know, I still don't think that borrowing money to buy cars is a way to actually make money because the car is going down by more than 10%. But you know, also, like, there are a lot of people who got very wealthy by buying investment real estate and they don't buy in cash. They buy with mortgages because they use that leverage to amplify their gains. And, so, and I think your answer is okay, by the way. I think there's like more... Of, I, I don't think you're going to get significantly more wealthy based on that 10,000 and just paying off a little more slowly. I think it's going to be basically rounding error relative to your net worth down the road. And so my answer to you on that would be, I think there's just like a psychological thing that just feels better to not be making a car payment. You know, when you, when you pay that off today and then you're not making that payment anymore, you can take all those payments you were making and invest those payments. You know, so the difference isn't whether you invest it now or you invest it a few years from now when the loans paid off. It's not really mathematically that much in your favor, even assuming that you do get your 10%. In the case of the bad thing happening and the market crashes and the bank wants their money back, you could be pinched. Because I definitely have met people also who have borrowed a bunch of money. They borrowed a bunch of money in 06 to 07. They put 10% down on a bunch of million dollar real estate. Million dollar real estate went down by 25% and then they were bankrupt. And like I literally was talking to one guy who did that and his wife left him because he was bankrupt, right? And so that $10,000 is just a shade of gray towards that. But like I said, if you do things carefully and wisely and you're not going overboard with how much money you're borrowing, you're over leverage and all that stuff. I think that it's not a crazy thing to do. I wouldn't say that's like wholly bad. I'm not like dogmatic about like Dave Ramsey is. But I do think that more people than not are just looking for an excuse to buy a fancy car and say, oh, well, since it's such a low interest rate, I'm better off. But not if you're spending more money on the car. Your car is $18,000. If they, get, if, if they bought a $30,000 car at the same interest rate, you're still $12,000 broker because you just wasted on the car. It doesn't matter what, what the, the rate is. That's the point. I completely agree with that. Is it's it was an affordable car, and so like you said, ten thousand, eighteen thousand, even in the grand scheme of things, really isn't going to be a huge deal. But when you start getting thirty, thirty-five, forty thousand dollars cars, that's that's when I think it gets to be impactful. And, and like you said, it's the asset so much, not as necessarily even like the debt or the rate, because if, maybe if it's on real estate, that's not as bad. It's generally an appreciating asset with cash flow, things like that. But a car, it's depreciating. It's not doing anything for you. So yeah, I think yeah. it's the asset that is a big component of that too. So we recently had Rick Ferry from the Boglehead community here on the show back on episode 24. And similar to what he talked about, you have seven rules for smart investing. And the first rule is to develop a workable plan. How does someone go about developing a plan? And why is it so important to have a plan when investing? So I'm a big Boglehead. If you're listening and you don't know what that means, Jack Bogle is the founder of Vanguard, who actually recently passed away, I think, at the beginning of this year. 2020 is a bad year. And he basically popularized and brought to market the first index fund. And an index fund is basically a very simple, low-cost way to buy an entire market of stocks. And he was very opinionated about basically individual investors are getting killed by the financial services industry. And you look at financial advisors and money market managers and mutual fund managers and uh, hedge fund managers and all, all these people who work in money and just are taking money off the top for their own fees. And then whatever's left investing back in the market, he says that is basically what's you know crippling the individual investor. And if you can remove those fees by just 
directly buying the stock market, then you'll be better off. So that's that's basically what the Bogleheads do. And and yeah, my rules of investing are like largely borrowed and simplified from the Bogleheads rules of investing. Um, I don't mean to say that those are unique, but yeah, rule number one is to develop a workable plan. And, and that's like, again, kind of a scary thing. It's like, what is a plan? And like, is it gonna, do I need to go to a lawyer and I have to get it notarized? Like a plan could be like, Word document with six bullet points or something like that that are numbered. And you're like, number one, pay off my debt. Number two, invest in a Roth IRA. Number three, buy used cars or you know whatever it is for your situation. You know whether it's saving for a house or if you have kids and you want to invest for college. But just write it down and write down like the numbers and the order in which you do things and what you're planning to invest in. And it can really be as simple as six bullets on a on a like a Word document. And I think once you put that plan in place, it just removes this scary not sure what I'm supposed to do thing. And you can always just go back and say, hey, we're about to spend $2,000 on a trip. Can we afford it? And you're like, well, the plan says put 500 bucks a month every month into a Roth IRA. We shouldn't go on that trip until we follow the plan. And I think once you have that plan, and, and you can take that plan, you know, if you invest 500 bucks a month, you get 7% return over 40 years. You can go put it into an online growth calculator, retirement calculator, and just see where you are. And you're like, okay, if I do this plan, I will be rich. It's that simple. And then, and then the next 40 years or 30 years or whatever, whatever your plan dictates, you just, just do what it says. And so, yeah, it doesn't need to be super complicated. You know, I kind of detail my plan in, in those six rules, like we talked about a minute ago. I mean, yours can be a little bit different based on your situation, but just make, be purposeful about what you want your money to be doing. If you're interested in learning more about the Bogleheads and that, that strategy, I would recommend going back to listen to episode 24 with Rick Ferry. It's one of our most downloaded episodes ever. A lot of people have really liked that episode. So I definitely recommend you go back and check that out. But yeah, I agree. I mean, if you follow the plan, then you have 30 or 40 years to take that $2,000 vacation really whenever you want. And you have plenty of time to do that later. So rules two and three are never bear too much or too little risk and never try to time the market and don't chase past performance. I lump these two rules together because I think people will often try and take on extra risk to make up for past poor performance. How can someone know if they're taking on too much or too little risk? Why shouldn't investors try to time the market? Too little risk, first of all, is when you're not investing. So for example, if you are saving for retirement and you take all your money and you put it into cash under your mattress, nature of inflation and the nature of missing out on the opportunity of growing that money is devastating. And so if you save 500 bucks a month for 40 years, you might have like 100, I think it might be $200,000 or so. But then at retirement, 200,000 bucks like ain't enough to live on for the next 20 or 30 or 40 years, right? But if you invest that money, you might have 2 million bucks. Too little risk is basically being afraid to get into the market. And that's things like, even though we're in the midst of this coronavirus thing and there's economic disaster, people are like, oh, I'm going to get my money out and, and save it. That's, you're bearing too little risk because right now you need to bear the risk. You need to have the money in the market and you need to believe that the market is full of profit producing companies and innovating and everything else. And that it's going to come back to you eventually, even if it's not over the next six months or 18 months or whatever. Bearing too much risk is going swinging the pendulum the other way, which is saying, I only have 500 bucks. I need to turn it to 50,000 bucks by the end of this year. How do I 100x my money in a year? And so you start day trading Bitcoin or you get, you get into some sort of scam because you're frantic or whatever. And that's too much risk because if you put all your money, if you put 500 bucks all into some new cryptocurrency, that cryptocurrency could go down by 90% or go down to zero and never come back because we don't know the future of cryptocurrency. And so that's too much risk. Um, and timing the market, I kind of talked about a little bit too, and you lumped them together too, which is like 
you shouldn't be jumping in another market based on what you think the market's going to do because you don't know. We don't know the future, but what we do know is that over long periods of time, the market goes up. And so the answer to these things is just to buy, diversify by broad market index funds. This is my strategy, the Boglehead strategy, which is to buy broad market index funds and invest early and often. So you invested this January high, you invest this March low, but over the next, you know, whether it's this January, we call it high, but there's only 20% higher than it is now, or we call it now low. But over 20 years, it's going to be 5 or 10x what it is. And the 20% difference today is going to be kind of irrelevant. So rule number four says to keep costs low and use index funds when possible. How do fees impact investment returns over the long term? So yeah, fees are kind of like the silent killer of investing. And so if you go by... And before Jack Bogle, this whole thing is kind of about Bogleheads, a typical mutual... So a mutual fund is when you put money into a a fund with a bunch of other people and you, you know you buy a share of that fund and there's a there's a smart mutual fund manager who picks and chooses stocks for you but then because that guy it's his job and he needs to pay rent and get a salary and everything he charges a fee of the assets under management and before Jack Bogle those fees were often 1%, 2%, 3% which doesn't sound terrible so if you have 100 bucks in there he takes a dollar like what's the big deal but if you just look at a 1% fee over the course of a 40 year investment it can it can erode half of the eventual investment, right? So if you're if you're putting like 500 bucks a month away for 40, 40 years and it grows to $2 million, if you're paying a 1% fee on that, it's $1 million. It's, it's like crippling. Like the, the cumulative effect of that fee is just devastating, right? And that's that was kind of like Jack Bogle's whole mission, which is there's this, this huge financial services community, which is offering to be a helper to and help you with your money, but take a large fee for it. And if you can basically not pay those large fees and invest in an index fund, which is just to invest basically directly in the market with a very limited fee, then you had that $2 million instead of $1 million. Both those numbers sound very big, by the way. If you're, if you're 25 years old and you only have 1000 bucks, you're like, I'll take a million or $2 million, $2 million either way. But you know, when you're 65 and you're looking at, okay, I'm not going to have an income for the next 30 years and I want to own a home, um, you, know, you, you might spend a million bucks on a home if you live in San Diego and you might still want the other million bucks to like, buy food with. So you don't want your money to be cut in half due to those fees. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. 
This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet. But I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. A lot of people listening to the show like picking individual stocks. That's kind of what we're known for here at the Investors Podcast. But a lot also like index fund investing. And I personally was strictly an individual stock investor, but over the last couple of years, I've come to allocate a portion of my portfolio to index investing and also do some stock investing. So I'm curious how you see this. Is there room for individual stock picking and index funds in someone's portfolio? Or do you recommend they just stick to strictly index funds? So I'm an index fund guy. I believe that buying and holding index funds is the most effective way to build wealth over time. I think they're broadly diversified. I think picking an individual stock is likely to add volatility to your portfolio without adding expected return because I basically believe that the market is efficient. And so if I go and choose a stock, there's just no way for any individual person to know whether or not that stock is more or less likely to outpace the rest of the market over time. And so I'm a strong believer in that. I think that's correct. I think that's right. I think it's mathematically basically provable. That said, the the important thing, the big thing, the 99% of the game is to invest. And so like I said, if all you're doing is picking individual stocks and you're just buying and holding stocks you like and you know just randomly buying more and more stocks and every month you're buying more stocks you're going to be fine right i think more likely than not the index fund will outpace you but you're still going to be fine and i also know that like it is human nature to think and maybe believe that you can beat the market you know it's it seems like a winnable game it seems very winnable like you see all the clowns out there doing ridiculous stuff like day trading beyond meat up to a zillion dollars a share and you know it's going to go down so why not short sell it or whatever or, you know, Tesla's the future of the world, or whatever. You know, there's all these examples of things that just seem so obvious, especially in retrospect. Once you see it happen, you're like, oh, yeah, I knew that was going to happen. I should bet on it next time. And so, that said, I know that it's an itch a lot of people want to scratch, including myself. Like, I've been there and I do own at least one individual stock right now. And so, I basically have what I call the 90 10 rule with 90% of your portfolio, buy and hold index funds. You guarantee yourself your fair share of market growth with minimal fees. That means no, no matter what any individual stock does, you're going to guarantee yourself fair, your fair share of all of market growth with 90% of your portfolio. So no matter how good or bad of a stock picker you are, your retirement will be fine. And then the other 10%, go nuts. Whatever. I say with that 10%, like give yourself permission to pick stocks, to buy cryptocurrency, to day trade, to short things, whatever you want. I mean, I wouldn't go on margin, like do anything that's going to like, like cripple your 90%. But the, the point of that is to basically like be a release valve on that itch that you want. Like if you want to go day trade, yeah, go do it with your, with your 10%. And then you also basically get to figure out, am I the next Warren Buffett? If you're as smart as you think you are, your 10% is going to far outpace your 90% pretty quickly, right? That should be easy. And then you've, then you've solved it, right? You know, and then your, your 90% of your contributions 
might now only be 2% of your portfolio because you're such an amazing day trader. And if that's true, then great. Congratulations. Like leave your you know, 90%, just leave it. You know, your 90% of your contributions, just leave it there. But if you're not that smart, then you, at least you, you're still safe. And, and I don't mean to, I don't mean to be, be too like, dismissive of that because my one individual stock I own actually is the company that I used to work for that bought my company. And it's it far outseated the stock market. And that has done great things for my personal portfolio. But I did keep it to a regular, relatively small proportion of my portfolio. And some index, index funds have done well. My one stock has done well. And so I'm glad to have had like, my lotto ticket, essentially. And I think it's good to have that lotto ticket. But you don't want to like, cripple your finances if it doesn't go well. Yeah, I think the two big pieces that you mentioned are not crippling yourself with the rest of your portfolio if the individual stock picking goes wrong. And that's important to do. And you can do that by portfolio allocation and keeping that percentage small in comparison to your index funds. What I think is also interesting and something I've learned is scratching that itch, like you said, was I always thought that I had to have 100% of my portfolio in individual stocks in order for me to get that itch scratched, if you will. But I've learned over the years, now I have 60% of my portfolio, say, in individual stocks, 40% in index funds. And I'm still feeling the same way as I did when I was at 100%. I still get that itch scratch and I'm still being able to do something that I'm passionate about. And I bet I could probably bring that percentage down even more, you know, flip it, maybe 40, 60, and probably still have that itch scratched. And who knows, in the future, maybe I will. But I think that's important for people to hear because just because you're allocating a smaller dollar amount in terms of your total portfolio doesn't mean you won't still scratch that same itch if you're passionate about it. I would argue there's also like a feeling of security and happiness that goes along with that saying, if you have a bad day in the market, like you're a bad day with your individual stocks, you can at least be like, well, it ain't that bad. <laughs> at least my index funds are still like cranking away from me. And so uh, I think that you can, you can kind of have the best of both worlds there if you like, you know, and you know, like I have a 90 10 rule, and you know, and you're obviously a guy that like loves, loves picking and choosing stocks. Like I said, if that's all you do and you're investing early and often, that's still a great thing. But I think as part of your plan, you can be like, hey, my plan is to put 50% of my money in index funds every single month and 50% in individual stocks, and then check it every year or two and see how my two accounts are doing. Like maybe you could have like a, you know, a Schwab account and a Fidelity account and like Schwab's for day trading and Fidelity's for index funds or whatever, and then just see which one's going up more. And I think, I think a lot of people don't really do that careful accounting of it. And they, they tend to remember their winners and forget their losers. And they believe like, oh yeah, this one stock I had did great. And, you know, they forget or don't talk about all the bad ones. And they haven't done like a real careful accounting of, am I actually outpacing the market? Like for sure you're making money, but making money isn't the bar you need to be. You need to beat the market in order to have had to be like a good choice. Yeah. You're not investing in a vacuum. If you earn 5%, 10%, but the market earns 20%, you could have done a lot better. That opportunity cost is, is large. And it's funny you mentioned the two different accounts because that's exactly what I do because I have my personal 401k through my employer at Vanguard and then I have my other investing that I do with Fidelity. And so what I've done is I had some jobs luckily when I was in college that had 401ks with great matches. I wasn't making a ton of money then, so the, the numbers are pretty small, but when I left those companies and I rolled those 401ks over into an IRA, I said, "Hey, this is the money I could use to invest in individual stocks." And that's it. Everything else is going in my 401k and it's just going to continually buy ETFs or essentially mutual nice. funds because that's what's available. So eventually, that if my stock investing doesn't do good, the picking, that percentage of my portfolio is going to come down and the rest will continue to rise because I'm contributing to it every week. So that's kind of how I've done it. I think there's a lot of people listening to the audience that could do something similar if that's, if that's what interests them because I know a lot of people like picking individual stocks. I love that. I, I think that it just goes to having a plan, right? I think when people don't have a plan, when they're like, 
start second guessing themselves. They're like a stock did really well. And so then they, like, they drain one account and then they go all in and then that stock crashes. And then like that kind of thrashing, I think is what's more likely to hurt you in the long run. But you're like, you said, Hey, this is, this is my day trading account. This is my stock picking account. This is my long-term investing account. I love it. So going back to the list of rules, rules five, six, and seven are to minimize taxes, keep it simple and stay the course. Walk us through how you should use these last three rules to round off someone's financial plan that we've been talking about so far. So minimizing taxes is basically just taking advantage of those retirement accounts when they're available, Roth IRA, 401k, 403b. You know, also, you know, index funds are notoriously tax efficient. You know, if you buying and holding stocks, there's not a lot of capital gains getting kicked off as you buy and sell them. And so it's another way to minimize taxes, which also, again, if you're doing that very careful accounting of which one is actually doing better, you know, index funds have that advantage for them too. And also to keep that in mind of if you are doing, if one is a buy and hold strategy and one account is a trading strategy, you know, maybe do that trading inside of the tax advantage account. Like if you're trading inside of your Roth IRA, then none of those capital gains affect you because it's either tax-free or tax-deferred depending on which type of IRA it is. So yeah, minimize, minimize taxes. Keep it simple. Keep it simple and stay the course as is like my whole thing. Like literally, if you buy if you buy VT, the ETF VT, which is a world ETF, you do nothing else your whole life. You just buy VT every single month. You will be extraordinarily wealthy. And when people ask you at dinner parties when you're 50 and you've got a million bucks in the bank, oh, what was your secret? You're like, I just bought one thing. I'm an idiot. You know, like they're like, how'd you know what thing it was? You're like, because it's the entire world, it's the entire world stock market. My actual personal favorite way to invest is what's called the target date index fund, which includes US index fund, international index fund, and a bond portion that increases as you age. So your your audience is a younger audience, but when you're, you know, sometimes I hear from a 65 or 70 year old who is 90% stocks and then coronavirus hits. And then they're like, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to eat tomorrow. I was like, well, you shouldn't be 90% stock at 70. So a targeted index fund does that for you automatically. Just all your money in exactly one fund, you buy and hold for 40 years. And that's all you have to do. It's so simple. And I basically think any more complexity you add to that is not likely to increase your wealth. It's more likely to hurt you than it is to help you. Or at the very least, it increases volatility without increasing an expected return. And so if you want to go day trader, you want to go pick stocks, at least with a portion of it, you know, take the guaranteed thing. And then rule seven is stay the course, which I think is just like one of the hardest ones because in the last few months, I've been getting a lot of questions. And unemployment's so crazy high right now. There's no way the market reflects that. Or I know the virus is going to come back and be a second wave. Or I, you know, suddenly the bad thing happens and people want to change everything when the plan all along was to account for market volatility. And we know stocks go up and down. We know the market goes up and down. But if you just keep investing every month and forget all about all that, then you'll be fine. And so remember, when things get weird, you just stay the course, keep doing the same thing. And then when you look five years from now, when we look back at 2020 and the market's way up, we're going to be like, oh, see, it wasn't that bad. We're fine. Yeah. We also just recently had JL Collins on the show who wrote The Simple Path to Wealth. And he said the exact same thing you just said. He, he buys the he buys VT Sachs. Yeah, VT US Sachs. Stock yeah, I was thinking what the uh, index fund version was. VTO, maybe? Oh, VTI is the ETF. Version. VTI, yeah. So he just recommends buying just VTSAX and that's it. And just leaving it and investing it forever and keeping things simple, just like you said. And I, growing up, and I'm still young, I'm only 25, but I've been investing probably for 10 years or so. And I was not simple at all before, but now I'm really trying to simplify things more. I'm still going to pick individual stocks, but I just, I love that simplicity component of it. I've been studying the 80-20 rule a lot, and I'm really trying to just simplify my portfolio, reduce some of the stress, and just go do other things. 
I was you 14 years ago. I'm not that old, 39. So I'm not, you know, an old man just yet. But uh, when I was, you know, when I was in college, I was picking individual stocks. I've I bought oil futures. I I bought Sears Canada. There's a day where Sears Canada was at is that like twenty bucks a share, and then there's at eight bucks a share, and then there's at two bucks a share. I was like, all right, Sears Canada is gonna be fine. I like I like did a little bit of reading about it. like it's I was like it's beloved in Canada. It's not going anywhere. So I, I put all this money in Sears Canada. <laughs> it went to zero. They went bankrupt. I lost all my money. So you know I, I've done my fair share of stupid things and like experience such a painful piece of knowledge that makes you all this money, which is the more simple you can make it, the more wealthy you're probably going to be. And all those things, like like I said, I still own an individual stock. I literally own one, the company I used to work for. You know, I still get the bug. I was like, oh man, like is the market like I even today I wake up and I was like, hmm, the market went up a lot yesterday because of this vaccine that had good results. Like I don't really believe that's like a lasting effect. I think that's just like a short sell. I mean and I didn't because I'm just too wise at this point for lack of a non uh, better word, I guess. But um, but yeah, the, the more I, the, the older I get, I was like, man, the reason people are broke ain't because they didn't day trade good enough. It's because they're just not keeping it simple and investing early enough. And not staying the course. And it's funny because JL mentioned the same thing. He said, look, I have the itch. He said, this is a, a, a secret of mine that I don't tell a lot of people, but I used to pick individual stocks when I was on my way to financial freedom. He said, everybody you know, wants it. But now that I'm older, now that I'm wiser, learn from me. And I wish I had just done individual stocks. And I think that's one of the great things that we're doing here with the podcast. You're still within our millennial generation. So we can all learn from people like yourself and JL who have a little bit more experience than us and can say, hey, do this and just keep things simple and, and you'll do just fine. And you don't have to worry about all this other stress and, and things like that. Thank you for calling me a millennial, by the way. I think like depending on how you look it up, I'm barely made the cut. Just in the cut, the, but yeah. One yeah. of the 80s, just yeah. barely. Yep. So when you're picking the index funds, how should someone decide between investing in a few select index funds like the total stock market index fund you mentioned, or even an S&P 500 index fund versus investing in a target retirement date fund like you talked about before? In my opinion, they should always invest in a target date index fund because inside of a target date index fund is a US stock index fund and is an international index fund. And so when you when you buy that target date index fund, I guess I should maybe give a little bit more background on that. So a target date index fund, they're always named after a year. And so you basically take your birth year. I was born in 1980. You add 65, that gives me 2045. And then you basically go buy the target date index fund from that year. Um, I think it's always important to check the expense ratio on that target date index fund because there are target date funds that are named after a year that aren't index funds and they can have very high expense ratios like 1% or higher. You know, the ones that I buy offered by Vanguard, Fidelity, and Schwab are 0.1% or lower. So, you know, you just buy that target index fund. And, and I think that, you know, when you ask, like, should you buy, you know, I, I, I always talk about the S&P 500 because it's like the most detailed and historical way to look at the performance of the US stock market. And so people who kind of briefly look at what I write are like, oh, I should be investing in the S&P 500, right? I said, no, like, you know, you should, but only as part of a target date index fund, because I don't know in the future if the US is going to outperform international. I don't know, you know, I don't know when the, when the volatility is going to hit. And so these target date index funds have all these rules all baked into one at the super low cost. It's basically just like the most wise investing. And any alterations you do to that strategy, I think, are just going to add volatility without adding expected returns. Now, I want to go back to the brief conversation we had at the beginning of the show about cars and then ultimately talk about living situations. So I saw a post on social media not too long ago 
that talked about how people say they can't afford to buy a car in cash, say a $25,000, $30,000 car, but they're willing to finance it for five, six, seven years at $400 a month, and that way they can afford it. Why is that a bad way to think about purchasing vehicles? I think that's bananas. I think that it's that mindset, that monthly mindset where they just can afford the payment so they think they can afford the car. And spending $30,000 on a car all at once seems crazy to them, but you're still spending $30,000. You're actually spending more than $30,000 when you include the interest. And so, yeah, it's just when you do the math, it's just so devastating. When you look at the difference it's going to make over the course of time, I think I, I gave that example of my own car where I guess I should say is I think people are still living in this fiction where like, I got this email the other day from a girl who was broke. She had a terrible credit score. She was going to go buy an $18,000 car at 20% interest because her score was so bad. And she's like, I have no, I have no other option. I was like, she's like, there are no cheap cars on me. I was like, what are you talking about? Like, I can, I promise you, name your city. I can go to Craigslist. I can go find a running car that's perfectly fine that fits for three or four or five thousand bucks. I mean, I bought I bought a camper van a few years ago for four thousand bucks. That was like a baller camper van, and I drove it across the southwest US and drove it to Mexico and was like, you know, camping it over wings. There's four thousand bucks. It, it drove fine, you know. And I, I think again, people are scared. They don't know which car is going to be good and stuff. But don't go ruin your financial future because you don't want to spend two or three days looking through Craigslist and test driving a few cars because there are perfectly good cars out there for 3000 bucks. The car that I drove that I bought for 3000 bucks, I sold for 1500 bucks and it was still a great car. I was driving that every day for a year as a millionaire and, and some you know, high school kid and it was his first car and he drove it away and it was great. And so I think you just need to like get over the fact that you have to spend $20,000 on a car if you're broke. You know, If you can afford and buy a car in cash, for sure, like there's beautiful cars for $20,000. I drive a Mazda now, a Mazda CX-5. I think it's $32,000 new. I wrote a check for it. But yeah, if you can't afford it, don't just don't make an excuse for yourself and say, I should go and be buying this tens of thousands of dollar car if you can't afford it because you're just like mortgaging your future. You're just signing yourself up for more indentured servitude to the banks for another five years after that, right? Like just for a few years, just drive a beater, you know, who cares? Drive a beater and save up your 400 bucks a month and then go buy a $10,000 car in cash and $10,000 cars are great. Those are ballers. So there's no problem finding one of those. Similar to buying a new car, buying too much house is often considered a massive hindrance on wealth building, which is one of the many reasons why I recommend house hacking to a lot of people who are looking to buy their first house. How do you recommend someone goes about their living situation? Should they buy, rent, house hack, something else? This is one of my favorite things to talk about because it gets people super pissed off. I'm not entirely sure why. I think it's like I think it's like a combination of homeowners who made a terrible decision and are trying to justify it, and realtors whose like livelihood depends on like selling homes to people who shouldn't be buying them. There's this like myth out there in the world that the home you live in is the greatest investment you'll ever make. And it's just not true. The only people for the only people who that's true for, it's the only investment they ever make. That's the only way your home will be the best investment you'll make is if it's the only investment you'll make. You know, if you look historically home prices, if you look at like the US home price index, it goes up about 4% per year. Whereas a index fund goes up about 10% per year. And the difference between that is massive. Like it sounds like only 6%, but it's like millions of dollars at the end of your career, right? But that 4% ain't free because that 4% you have to pay insurance. You have to pay property tax. You have to maintain that property if you want to sell it for that 4% increase. You have to pay mortgage interest if you borrowed money to buy a house. And so I actually did a study that looked at if you bought a house in 1990, 30 years ago, and then you sold it today, the price of that home would be up about 30%. But then when you account for all the expenses you paid along, the, along that time just to like live in that house, 
you actually lose money. You like lose money on your house. And people love to talk about how much money they made on a house because they sold it for more than they bought without talking about all the money they put into it during that time, right? As a company, you don't get to say like, oh, we profited a million dollars, but we spent $2 million. Like, no, you, the profit only counts if you, if you count your expenses, right? And so basically, the rent versus buy thing, when I talk about understanding the true cost of homeownership, people accuse me of saying homeownership is bad. And I'm not saying that, but what I am saying is to understand the true costs and to minimize the cost of living, whether you rent or buy. And so if you're paying a thousand bucks a month for rent, and then you move into a place that's a $3,000 mortgage, I guarantee you're going to be more broke for having made that move. The $2,000 extra in your house is just going to cost you so much money in all those fees I mentioned. And you mentioned house hacking, which is when you buy a duplex and you rent one half and you live in one half, or you buy a house and you rent out two rooms and you live in it. Like I love that because that's minimizing your cost of living. It's kind of turning your personal residence, your primary residence into an investment. And when I talk about the true cost of home ownership, I'm talking about your primary residence because it's not generating income. If you go buy an investment property where someone's paying you rent and there's positive cash flow and you're getting additional equity by paying down the mortgage every month, then that's great. That's a very different thing. But your primary residence is an expense. It just costs you money. And so my big thing is understand the true cost of homeownership. Don't just fall for this myth that it's always a good thing and everyone should be a homeowner. That's not necessarily true. And whether you rent or buy, minimize your cost, right? So if you're renting a $2,000 a month apartment or a $1,500 a month apartment, they're going to look about the same. You're going to go to your two friends. One guy's paying $2,000, one guy's paying $1,500. Don't, you're not going to think anything different of that person or whatever. But if the, if the guy's investing the difference at 500 bucks a month, that's a million bucks in retirement. And so same goes for buying your primary residence. If you're looking at a house that costs $300,000 or there's one for two fifty, dollars and you invest that $50,000 extra, and it doubles a few times, there's another half a million dollars every time. So even like pretty modest differences like that can make a big difference over time. I think one of... I had someone recently come to me and talk about their primary residence and they bought it for about 150. They were about to sell it for about 200. And so they're like ecstatic because they're going to make $50,000 in profit. And I said to them, that's great. And then we, I said, let's dive into the numbers a little bit more. And I said, how much have you paid in mortgage payments over the last two years? They owned it for two years. And they paid about 35000 in mortgage payments. I said, okay, so now your profit just went down by 35000 So now it's fifteen. And the reason that that happens for someone listening, if you haven't had a mortgage or you really haven't looked into it, is because if you make a $1,000 mortgage payment, only maybe 200 if that, is going to principal and the rest is going to interest. So that's the way the amortization schedule works on a mortgage. So they really only made 15000 And I said, okay, how much did you put down on that property? What was your closing cost? What was your down payment? They put 15000 down. And I said, okay, so now you're break even. And that's not including any utilities. That's not including any upkeep on the property, adding anything else you did. So I said, really? Property tax every Property year. tax, exactly. So that's not making... You didn't make any money on this, really. And I felt bad bursting their bubble, but that's the exact conversation that people need to be having. That's the way they need to think about it. And everybody... I tell that story because I want everybody listening to the show today to be educated when they're making these decisions. If you still make that decision because it's right for you, so be it. But at least understand that that's what you're doing. A house is basically a forced savings account because people are going to make their mortgage payment because they don't want to be foreclosed on and be homeless. And then when they see the fruits of that saving savings account, you know, two years or 20 years later, they're like, oh, look at all this money that I'm finally getting back, which is fine. But after expenses, you're actually losing money exactly like you just described. And worse than that, it's great to get money back. But worse than that, you're missing out on the opportunity cost of investment money instead, right? So 
you know, that person, if you, if you extrapolate that another 20 years and that person made $100,000 back, they're like, oh my God, I have $100,000. I'm so happy. But they'd have a million dollars if they were investing that instead, right? And so it is, it is a crippling thing. And a lot of people say, well, rent, renting's not good either. And I was like, I didn't say renting was good. Renting costs money too. They both cost money. But I think the biggest thing I always see is people rent modestly and then buy extravagantly. They rent for a thousand bucks a month and they buy for three thousand bucks a month. It's just so typical because people, their castles, their kingdom, or you know, they're the king of their castle or whatever, and it's an investment and they want to, you know, make it their own and all this stuff. And that like tripling of the cost of your of your living expenses is just gonna cost us a huge amount of money and the opportunity cost of not investing the difference. And so if you do buy, consider what you would have been renting for instead. Yeah, I think there's a psychological component to that because if you rent and some you have your friends over, family over, you can just say, Oh, it's just, you know, it's a rental. It's just my, you know, it's just a, an apartment. Whereas if you own it and people are coming over, it's like, oh, this is my house. Like I own it, you know. So is, there's that psychological or keep up with the Joneses. I drove a ninety nine Ford for six years and I, I dated girls and like I never had a girl not like that car. And if I did, I would have been like, you're going to choose whether you like me based on that I happen to drive a 99 Ford. And, and in fact, people probably like you more if you drive a shitty car because it makes them feel better about themselves. Like whatever, you just got to get over that ego thing and just say, hey, I'm going to, how about instead of looking rich, how about being rich? You know, that's what, that's what I prefer, right? Have that money be in the bank account. And then when you're 50 and, and you've retired and they're still slaving away to make their payment because they're house poor, you know, they don't, doesn't look such, like such a fancy house anymore. Yeah, it's such it's such an ego and just perception type thing, and and that's I think that's the hardest part about personal finance altogether. And so I want to ask, what is the biggest thing you know now that you wish you knew when you were just getting started? I thought about this a lot, and I know the exact answer. It is I wish I knew that Bitcoin would be six cents a coin in two thousand nine, and then in two thousand eighteen it would be eighteen thousand a coin. Because if I knew that, I would be a Bitcoin billionaire. Uh, I'm kidding, of course. I mean, I wish I did know that because I would be rich. But the thing is, time only marches in one direction forward. And so going forward today, does that make Bitcoin a good investment? In my opinion, no. I don't think Bitcoin's going to do that again. I don't know. Obviously, I didn't know last time either, but I definitely don't know this time. And so what I really wish I knew is just the value of simplicity and the value of early and often. And I did pretty well. I, you know, I, I don't have some amazing rags to riches store. I did pay myself very little when I started my company. and I had very little money. But I, I, you know, I, I bought one car with a loan and paid it off. I, I had credit card debt for a few years and paid it off. So I wasn't making horrific decisions. But I think that all the crazy stuff that floats on people's minds, if you can just boil it down to simplicity early and often, stay the course, that's what really matters. And don't let all the complexity scare you too much. So I think learning from podcasts and all of the information that we talked about today, and even from books, is great and a vital part of success. But it's really only half of the equation. I see the other half of the equation as equally important, if not more important. And that's taking action on what you learned. So after someone listens to this episode, what is the first thing they should go out and do to get started or improve their current wealth building journey? I don't know if I can give one answer for everyone because I think there are people listening who are from like there are people who have seven different investment accounts and they're very sophisticated traders. And there are probably some people listening who don't have any investment accounts and don't even have a Roth IRA. And so I can't really give those two people the same advice, but I would say to focus on the step that you're on. And so if you have debt right now, if you have credit card debt, car loans, student loans, just focus on that. And if you don't have debt, open an investment account. And if you, and if you have an investment account, put more, like whatever step you're on, focus and just focus on that one thing you're doing and ignore everything else. Because if you focus on it in a year or two years or three years, 
sounds like a long time, but relative to your life, it's a very short time. That step is going to be done. You, know, you can put the debt behind you. You can get those accounts maxed out, whatever it is. And then you can move on and go to the next part of your financial career. And I think that that lack of focus is what causes people to thrash for decades instead of like getting it cleaned up now. And so whatever step it is, if you've never opened an account, if then open an account. If you have the debt, pay the debt. If you're investing, you know, automate those investments, whatever it is, focus and... and uh, and I guess if I had one other, one other piece of advice is to calculate your net worth, get the spreadsheet out, know your net worth. Because I think most people don't do that. I'd say maybe like 10% or less of people actually know their net worth. So this applies to most people. Learn your net worth because if you don't know your net worth and if you don't track it over time, it's like playing a football game without knowing the score. And that's not a, not a good way to do it. Is there a specific benchmark that someone should have for their net worth given their age? Or is it just so you know where you are so that you can plan for the future? You can take your net worth and then the amount you have invested and then extrapolate that along with your monthly contributions, what you're likely to have in the future. You can see, are you on pace to be a millionaire by X year or whatever? But I think it's more about just knowing where you are. It's just about knowing the score. It's, you know, it's hard to play a football game or a basketball game if you can't look at the scoreboard because it affects your decision-making, right? So if your net worth is negative $40,000 and you're putting five bucks a month away and going on lavish vacations, you need to change your decision-making because you're going to be in big trouble down the road. Whereas if your net worth is a million dollars at 30 and you're living on $10,000 a year in a cardboard box, like maybe you can chill a little bit and, and uh, you know, go out to dinner. I think setting a strong foundation through personal finance is the key to becoming a successful investor, which is what we talk about most frequently here on the show. So I really enjoyed this conversation. I think it's important for everyone listening to the show to hear and learn more about these topics. I know a lot of people listening to the show come to the show, come to the Investors Podcast because they're interested in investing in stocks and specifically individual stocks. And you guys know that I love that. I'm passionate about it. We love talking about it here on the show. But I think you need to take a lot of what Jeremy said and what I talked about today to heart and make sure you get a good foundation of personal finance first before you start worrying about those types of investments so that you can really be a successful investor and invest from a position of strength rather than having a weak foundation. So Jeremy, like I said, I love this conversation. For those that want to connect with you further, where's the best place for them to find you? Thanks. Yeah, I totally agree. And don't let perfect be the enemy of good, but also get started and just learn and keep learning and, and learn over time. And I think that you'll realize it's not that scary and, and it's uh, not that hard of a thing to do. So yeah, most of the magic for me happens on Instagram at Personal Finance Club. I also have a Facebook and a YouTube by the same name and the website, personalfinanceclub.com. I'm a pretty easy guy to find. My name is Jeremy Schneider. So come check out. You get a daily on your little Instagram feed, you get a daily dose of uh, wise investment advice. I'll be sure to put a link to all of those different resources in the show notes so you guys can go connect with Jeremy there. Jeremy, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Robert. That was great. It's been a pleasure. All right, guys. That's all I had for this week's episode of Millennial Investing. I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.